0: Before we begin, I realized that I forgot to do our Patreon shoutouts and announce the winner of our Patreon supporter prize pack at the end of the month. Sorry about that. I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters who have pledged at the $10 Pure Metalhead level, the highest level, Martha Klein and Amber Lamb. Thank you so much, Martha and Amber, for going above and beyond in your pledge to OUAC. Now it's time to announce our winner of the prize pack. One winner from all our Patreon supporters has been chosen randomly, and this month, the winner will receive another version of the Serial Killer coloring book. This one includes pages featuring Elizabeth Bathory, the Zodiac Killer, and Jack the Ripper, and more. They will also receive a signed collector's copy of Entertainment Weekly magazine, containing an article that featured Once Upon a Crime, and some OUAC swag. The winner of the October prize pack is Caitlin Richardson from Lafayette, Colorado. Congratulations, Caitlin. That prize pack will be going out to you soon. And thanks to all of you who support OUAC on Patreon. I hope you enjoyed the bonus wrap-up episode for the Haunted Homicide series, where I shared some more weird and creepy things that occurred while I was producing that series. If you want to become a Patreon supporter and get bonus episodes, perks, and be eligible for our monthly drawing, you can do that for as little as $2 per month by going to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks.
1: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's November, and in America, that means the Thanksgiving holiday will soon be upon us. Families and friends will be gathered around dinner tables to eat turkey, or some other vegetarian option, and to give thanks for all this year has brought. In the spirit of gratitude for all of you, those of you who listen to this podcast each week, share it with others, and reach out to me to share a story, give feedback, give episode suggestions, or even go out of your way to leave a review, I decided to make November Listener Appreciation Month. To thank you for all of those things and more, I'm selecting this month's cases from listener suggestions. Thank you for all the suggestions you sent to me by email or shared on the Once Upon a Crime Group Facebook page. I had quite a few to pick from. Our first case comes to us from Rhode Island and was shared with me by Michaela Fortin, who hails from that area. She shared information with me about an unlikely serial killer, and once I heard the details, I knew I wanted to share it with you. This is the case of Craig Price, a.k.a. the Warwick Slasher. Just an additional warning before we begin. This case may be disturbing for some to hear, as it details a violent crime including the murder of children. Listener discretion is advised. It was Labor Day, September 4, 1989, and Marie Bouchard had not heard from her daughter Joan Heaton at all that weekend. This was unusual, as she and her 39-year-old daughter were close, always staying in frequent contact. Joan and her two daughters, Jennifer, age 10, and Melissa, 8, lived in Warwick, Rhode Island, a community of 90,000, located on the Narragansett Bay. Marie and her other daughter, Mary Lou, decided to take a drive out to Joan's home on Metropolitan Drive to check on her and her granddaughters. They rang the doorbell repeatedly, but while Joan's car was in the driveway, no one answered. They decided to enter the house. Marie called out to Joan and the girls, but the house was silent. Then they saw blood splattered throughout the room. As they reached the hallway, they saw a pile of blood-soaked sheets on the floor, and beneath them lay Joan. Her oldest daughter, Jennifer, was lying nearby, also covered by a sheet and a small rug. Marie and Mary Lou now frantically searched for eight-year-old Melissa. Her body was found lying on the kitchen floor. All three had been brutally murdered. It was a horrible sight that no mother or sister should ever witness, and it would haunt them from that day forward. Police arrived at the scene and couldn't believe the savagery of the attack. Even seasoned homicide detectives were shaken by the violence perpetrated on the three victims. Joan Heaton had been stabbed nearly 60 times with a butcher knife. she had also been bludgeoned and strangled. Jennifer had been stabbed 62 times. The youngest child, Melissa, was bludgeoned with a kitchen stool, her skull fractured. She'd also been stabbed multiple times. The attack on the little girl was so vicious that one of the blades had broken off in her neck. The Warwick Police Department made finding the perpetrator of this heinous crime their top priority. It seemed the Heaton family had put up a terrific fight for their lives. The point of entry into the house appeared to be the kitchen window. As the intruder had stepped on a table to lower himself into the kitchen, the table had broken. Perhaps the noise had awakened Joan, as she was found in her nightclothes. Homicide detectives believed she had begun to struggle with the attacker, which woke her children, who were then also attacked. The knives they'd been stabbed with had come from Joan's own kitchen. There were no fingerprints left behind so police believed the attacker had worn gloves. The scene was too bloody and chaotic for the murderer to have cleaned up much, but found outside of the bathroom was a bloody sock print. Investigators called in help, first calling on famed forensic scientist Henry Lee, who'd worked on well-known cases, including the John Bene Ramsey murder case and the O.J. Simpson and Lacey Peterson cases. He determined that the attacker, having struggled with his victims, may have injured himself in the knife attack. Detectives found Band-Aid wrappers in the bathroom, where he probably washed and bandaged his wound. Lee determined the bloody sock print belonged to a person with a size 13 shoe. Warwick detectives also asked the FBI for help in coming up with a suspect profile. After being briefed about the particulars of the crime, FBI profiler Greg McCrary told investigators it seemed to be a very disorganized scene, not well planned out. He thought it might have been committed by someone local, perhaps someone who lived in the neighborhood, because of the fact that he'd covered his victims. This indicated to McCrary that the attacker may have known his victims and didn't want to look at what he'd done to them. Also, because the weapon came from inside the house, it was most likely a crime of opportunity indicating that he may have known the routines of the family as well as the fact that no man who might have posed a physical threat lived in the home. McCrary also told investigators that because the neighborhood was predominantly inhabited by white Irish Catholics, they would most likely be looking for a white male in his late teens, possibly athletic and with a history of past problems or run-ins with the police. He also believed he probably lived within walking distance of the murders as no out-of-place cars or suspects had been seen in the vicinity at the time of the murders. He concurred with Dr. Lee that the attacker had been injured in the struggle. "'Who's the asshole around here with the cut hand?' he asked the detectives. "'That's who you want to look for.' Finally, he asked a very important question. "'Have there been any other crimes committed like this that they knew of?' "'Yes,' the police answered. Two years earlier there had been a similar attack in the neighborhood.' just one block away from the Heatons. Rebecca Spencer was a 27-year-old mother of two living on Inez Avenue in the Buttonwoods neighborhood of Warwick. She was sharing a home with her brother, Carl Batty, who was an overnight security guard. On July 27, 1987, Becky, as she was known to friends and family, was packing to move to another neighborhood. She'd been busy boxing up her belongings all day, while her children, ages 8 and 4, "'stayed at their father's home. "'Her brother left for work, "'and Becky was persuaded to go out for a bite to eat with friends. "'They asked her to stay over with them, "'as most of her furniture and things were already packed, "'but she had elected to stay home. "'She fell asleep on a mattress on the floor in the living room, "'exhausted from the long day. "'In the morning, when Carl returned home, "'he found his sister lying dead in a pool of blood. "'She'd been stabbed 58 times,' with the packing knife she'd been using earlier that day. Now detectives ticked off the similarities in Becky Spencer's murder and the Heaton murders. All four had been victims of a frenzied overkill-type attack, being brutally stabbed multiple times each. The killer had also used a weapon found in the home both times. Finally, the proximity of both crime scenes was chilling. The Heaton's home was just around the corner on the next block, from where Becky Spencer was murdered. The likelihood that someone in the neighborhood was committing the murders was apparent. Detectives had already canvassed the neighborhood, interviewing community members several times. Two detectives, Ray Pendergast and Mark Brandreth, were driving past a park near the Buttonwoods neighborhood when they saw a teen they knew. Craig Price, age 15, had been coached by Pendergast in a neighborhood basketball league. Price was African-American, 5'10", and weighed close to 240 pounds. From a distance, he looked like a full-grown man, but up close had a baby face. He had a quick smile and was known as a jokester at Warwick Veterans High School, where he was repeating his freshman year. He'd previously played football for his high school, but when he'd been held back, he'd become ineligible to play until he brought his grade point average up. Price also had a juvenile record. A couple of years earlier, he'd been running with a gang of kids who were committing residential burglaries. He was picked up and spent two weeks in juvenile detention. And just that summer, he'd gotten into an argument with his 21-year-old sister, Kim, who had called the police after he had physically threatened her. When they arrived, Price pushed one of the officers and was arrested. He'd recently been put on probation for that charge. Now detectives called Craig Price over to their police vehicle. He cheerfully greeted them, and as they chatted, they noticed that his hand was bandaged. They asked him if he'd heard anything about the Heaton murders. Still cheerful, he relayed the same gossip the detectives had been hearing from most of the residents in the neighborhood about the crime. They then asked him what had happened to his hand. Price told them that he'd gotten drunk several nights earlier and had punched his hand through a car window on Keeley Avenue. The detectives thought it was odd that the teen would so easily admit to vandalizing a car to police officers. They drove off after their conversation with Price but decided to follow up and investigate his story. Back at the station, they inquired about a car window being smashed but no police report of that kind had been taken in the area. They even went to Keeley Avenue to see if any shattered glass was in the street but found nothing. Something else struck them while investigating Craig Price's story. He lived on the next block over from Joan Heaton and just two houses away from Becky Spencer. But while they were beginning to look at him as a viable suspect, they also realized that two years earlier, when Becky was murdered, Craig Price would have only been 13 years old. Still, they couldn't help but have a gut feeling that they needed to follow this lead. They ran Price's record and besides the breaking and entering charge, they also found that he had a history of drug use and a violent temper. Police had been called to his home more than once due to him lashing out physically against family members. His record also included incidents of peeping into windows. It was suspected that he was casing houses to burglarize. Then another strange coincidence was discovered. A neighbor had called in a report of a black man peeping into the home occupied by Becky Spencer and her brother Carl. The man wasn't found, and the report ended there. Two weeks later, Becky Spencer was found murdered in her home. Detectives went to Craig Price's residence and asked him and his parents to accompany them to the police station to be questioned. They complied. There, detectives questioned Price more about the cut on his hand. He stuck to a story about breaking the car window. They asked him to take a polygraph test, which he and his parents agreed to. The results showed deception, but without any other evidence, they had nothing to hold him on, and his parents took him home. At the same time, they made two more discoveries. First, they determined that Price wore a size 13 shoe, the same size as the bloody sock print left behind in Joan Heaton's home. Secondly, As they questioned neighbors now, with Craig Price as a suspect, they heard from some of his high school classmates that he had bragged about killing Becky Spencer. But everyone knew Craig was a joker, and they thought he was just clowning around, as usual. They even teased him good-naturedly, calling him the Buttonwoods Killer. Craig had been raised by John and Shirley Price, who were devout Baptists. He grew up attending church and learning scripture along with his two older siblings. His mother was a clerical worker, and his father was a manager for Pepsi Corporation. When Craig was five, the family moved from the Boston area to Warwick, Rhode Island. They picked their neighborhood because they believed it had the best public schools for their children. Craig had lived a typical middle-class upbringing. He played sports, listened to rock and rap music, and liked to be outdoors riding his bike. Or playing with his many friends. He was always the class cut-up, and teachers liked him. He could be charming, they said, but despite being bright, he often shirked his studies, which was the reason he was held back a grade. Nothing stands out from Craig Price's background or early life, except for the fact that he was called accident-prone by his family. When he was three years old, he slipped out of the house and was hit by a car. Luckily, his injuries were minor. At the age of seven, he was hit on the head with a rock and received stitches. A couple of years later, he fell and broke his collarbone. There are no reports of significant brain injuries, at least none that were diagnosed. He began smoking marijuana as a young teen, also not uncommon, but he quickly graduated to taking LSD and harder drugs as well as abusing alcohol. Now armed with a search warrant, the investigators returned to the Price home. While his parents were very alarmed that the police were searching their home, Craig was unconcerned. While they conducted the search, Craig fell asleep on the couch. A shed behind the house turned up a trash bag that contained bloody clothes, gloves, and bloody knives. They would later determine that they came from Joan Heaton's knife set. Craig was woken up and arrested. Once again, the 15-year-old was brought to the police station, and his parents sat in the room with him while he was questioned about the Heaton murders. It didn't take long for Price to confess in great detail, and in a nonchalant manner. He told of biting Joan Heaton and her daughter as they struggled against him. He even mimicked the sounds the dying girls made as he confessed on tape. His father, hearing how his son had brutally murdered women and children, left the room to vomit and did not return. His mother surely stayed in the room with her son, but sat behind him, sobbing through his entire confession. According to Price, he had gone to the Heaton's home to burglarize it, but Joan heard him enter and break the table under the window, and came out from her bedroom to investigate. He said he panicked, grabbed the woman and began to beat and strangle her. Her children woke up after hearing their mother's screams and ran to her, He'd already strangled her into unconsciousness, so he then grabbed a knife from the kitchen and began stabbing the older girl. She bit him while trying to get away, and in a rage, he bit her in the face. The younger girl, Melissa, had run to the kitchen to get to the phone, and he stabbed her and beat her with the stool until she stopped struggling. He then returned to Joan and stabbed her until he was sure she was dead. He'd cut his hand during the struggle and tended to it in the bathroom after removing the gloves he'd been wearing. He didn't know that he'd dripped blood, stepped on it, and then tracked the bloody sock print through the house. He covered the bodies with towels and blankets and tried to clean up some of the blood with towels, which he then wrapped the bloody knives and his gloves in before leaving. He admitted that he'd stashed the bag behind the shed on his family's property. Because the crime was so similar to the Rebecca Spencer murder, his neighbor who lived just two houses away, they asked him about that crime too. He quickly admitted that he'd also killed her, though he'd only been 13 years old at the time. Again he said he'd snuck in to rob the home and come upon the woman, so he used a knife he found nearby to stab her to death. He'd slipped unnoticed back into his own house, removed his bloody clothes, and hidden them in a bag in his attic. Police would later retrieve them from there. Detectives were chilled by the 15-year-old's unfeeling attitude and lack of remorse for the brutal crimes he'd committed. He showed no emotion, even while describing the killing of the children. The only time he'd seemed upset was when he talked about cutting his hand. But the detectives didn't buy the story that this was a robbery gone wrong. The brutality of the crime and the seemingly rage-filled attack on the four victims told another story. Price would later clarify his motivations for killing, but it's hard to know if he was truthful. First, he would give an account of the events leading up to the murder of Becky Spencer. He said that the day before the murder, he'd been playing a hide-and-seek game called Manhunt with a group of kids in front of his house on Inez Avenue. A car wanting to pass yelled out at the kids for being in the way. According to Price, as he passed, the man rolled down his window and yelled a racial slur at him. He later identified this man as Becky's brother, Carl Batty. Price said he'd been enraged and decided he had to do something about this insult. He would write, I could not banish from my mind the fact that I not only wanted to kill, but had to kill. On the night of July 27th, my mind was made up to murder. Craig Price would explain, that he had often encountered racism and over time the rage built up in him until he couldn't hold it back any longer. After his father left to work the night shift and the rest of the family was asleep, Price snuck out of his house and crept over to Batty's house, intent on doing harm. But two questions remain. First, did this incident with Batty actually take place? As far as I could tell, this was not confirmed with anyone else including Batty or the other children who were playing in the street that day. One neighborhood kid said that a man had slowed down and called out to them to move out of the street when cars were coming, warning them about getting hurt. But the kid didn't know if he'd said anything else to Price. Secondly, if it was Batty that he was angry with, why did he kill Rebecca? And why did there seem to be so much rage against her when, by his own account, he didn't know her at all? Another account came out later that the man Price may have seen the day of the murder, who he identified as Carl Batty, was actually the boyfriend of Rebecca's friend that had come to pick her up that evening. It is unknown whether he saw or spoke to Craig Price. Price claimed racism was also a factor in the Heaton murders. Two weeks before the murders, Price said he'd come upon the Heatons as they were out for a bike ride. He'd offered to fix a bike chain that had slipped off of one of the girls' bikes, and as he did so, he claimed that the girls looked at each other and giggled. He interpreted this as a racist insult, and believed they were laughing at him. A few days later, as he walked past the Heaton's house, he reported seeing Joan Heaton looking out at him from a window. Again, he took this as a sign that Joan was racist, and suspected him of being in her neighborhood for criminal purposes because he was black. While we cannot know what Joan Heaton or the girls were thinking about Price, and it is very possible that he may have experienced racism previously, there is no evidence that Joan Heaton, her daughters, or Becky Spencer, ever displayed a racist attitude against the teen. It's not even certain that they had ever met him. If he had encountered the girls on the bike ride, as he said, and the girls had giggled while he was fixing the bike, we must remember that they were two little girls. Little girls tend to giggle about everything. They may have been shy around the older boy, whom they did not know well, and this caused them to giggle. He was an older boy, and for all he knew, they could have giggled because they thought he was cute. Or it could have had nothing to do with him. And as for Joan Heaton looking out of her window, well, she could have just happened to be glancing outside as he passed, But even if she was looking at him suspiciously, he conveniently forgot to mention that he had been convicted of burglary in the neighborhood. Joan had lived in the Buttonwoods area for four years and may have heard about the boy's record. But there is something else that is very telling. While being interviewed before his court hearing, Price talked about an incident when he was eight or nine, when some older teens picked on him, called him the N-word, and caused him to crash his bike. He'd first been terrified that they were going to try and hurt him and then angry that he hadn't stood up to them. It was at that time he admitted that he first wanted someone to die. His anger began to build, he said, and he acted upon it by breaking and entering and stealing from people. A report by a psychiatrist that was shared with the court said it was possible that Price possessed a pre-existing paranoid trait that caused him to perceive mistreatment when it was non-existent, end quote. In essence, the report stated that Price either believed he was being singled out and discriminated against due to his race, and this was not based in reality, or he was using racism as an excuse to justify his crimes. It is of interest to note that while he reported all of the incidents of the worst treatment as coming from males, a group of teenage boys, and then Carl Batty, all four of his victims were female and two were only children. When 15-year-old Craig Price was arrested for four murders, none of his friends could believe it. They thought the police must have made a mistake. They showed up outside of the police station to show their support for their friend, who they considered incapable of such crimes. As he was taken away in handcuffs, he called out to his supporters, "'When I get out, I'm going to smoke a bomber,' It wasn't until later that his friends would hear how he'd confessed in detail and that evidence of the murders was found in his house. On September 21st, less than three weeks after the murder of Joan Heaton and her daughters, Jennifer and Melissa, Price stood before a judge and pled guilty to the crime. He also admitted responsibility in the two-year-old murder of Rebecca Spencer. Because Price was a minor, there would be no trial. The judge would make the ruling and hand down his sentence. But as far as punishment was concerned, the judge didn't have much choice in the sentencing. Price had confessed to his crimes just weeks before his 16th birthday. Because of this, the maximum sentence he could receive was detention in a juvenile training school until his 21st birthday. He would be sent to Rhode Island's Youth Correctional Center for five years, after which time he would be released. The public was outraged that someone who had committed and even callously admitted to such brutal crimes, would be allowed to go free after only five short years. A campaign began that was led in part by Rhode Island State Attorney Jeff Pine, Warwick Detective Kevin Collins, who was one of the first officers on the scene of the heat murders, and the victims' families, including Joan's mother Marie Bouchard and her sisters Gail and Mary Lou. They would all work to change the laws so that juveniles could be tried in adult court for the most heinous crimes. They would also become involved in advocacy groups to protect the rights of victims of violent crimes and their families. Though they were able to get the law passed, it could not be applied retroactively to Craig Price. While at the training school, the family court planned to provide intensive treatment to Price in order to, quote, diagnose and treat such psychiatric and or personality disorders That may have contributed to his unprovoked and unusually brutal conduct, and to make it possible for him to be released into the community when his approximately five year commitment to the training school ends. He was to be assessed by two experts in the field Dr. Sherbert Frazier, formerly the director of the National Institute for Mental Health, and Dr. Wesley Prophet, director of forensic services at Bridgewater State Hospital. After evaluation, they would design a diagnostic treatment plan for Price. At first, Price and his counsel agreed to this, but then the inmate was told that as part of his assessment and treatment plan, he would be required to discuss with the doctors his recollection of the events surrounding the murders. Upon hearing that, Price declined to cooperate with doctors and refused treatment. Price said that after speaking to his attorney, he feared that the institution would use a psychiatric diagnosis to place him in a facility for a commitment beyond his 21st birthday. It seems that Price intended to do his five years and walk out a free man without treatment of any kind. But this was not the intention of the family court when they sentenced him to the training school. Since Price continued to refuse to comply with the judge's order, he was brought back into court and admonished by the judge, who said it was in the best interest for him and the community to agree to evaluation and treatment and that he had no Fifth Amendment right to refuse. In addition, no treatment could begin until the two experts made a full assessment based on Price's recollection of the crimes he'd committed and his mental reactions to the reasons why he was at the training school. Dr. Prophet also testified before the court that if Price did not receive treatment, there was a continued danger to the community once he was released. A full year later... Price was still refusing to participate in a treatment program. In a statement entered into the court record, Price indicated that he, quote, had no interest in his treatment and simply wanted to forget about his crimes, complete his stay at the training school, and leave, end quote. At that same time, Dr. Prophet made the following unequivocal statement. First, there can be no doubt that Craig Price is a murderer of the serial type. At this point, as you well know, Craig, on advice of counsel, is unwilling to discuss his state of mind at the time of the murders. I suspect from all that I have seen and know of these murders, that Craig was in a psychotic rage at the time of these events, and that he should probably be classified as a serial murder disorganized type. At this point, and without great cooperation and assistance from Craig, it cannot be determined what are the psychodynamic underpinnings of Craig's behavior. Without an accurate formulation as to why these things occurred, it is virtually certain that Craig Price will not be able to demonstrate significant improvement or get well on his own. Without the assistance of a skilled therapist through the long and arduous process of examination of his thoughts and fantasies about what happened and his understanding of his reasoning or lack of saying for engaging in this behavior, it is unlikely that Craig Price will be significantly different and therefore at less risk of repeating this behavior upon his release than he was on the day of his commitment to your facility. Secondly, the mere passage of time is unlikely to produce a change for the better in Craig Price, and there is no reason whatsoever to suspect that the passage of time alone can take the place of an aggressive treatment program for this individual. Thirdly, Craig Price's unwillingness to discuss the circumstances surrounding his behavior and his tendency to minimize and deny the importance of that behavior, including the view that these murders occurred in the service of efforts on his part to rob the adult victims, are but further examples of psychopathological symptomology at work. Finally, it is my opinion that Craig Price suffers from a substantial disorder of thought, mood, orientation, perception, and memory, which grossly impairs his judgment, behavior, capacity to recognize reality, and ability to meet the ordinary demands of life. In short, it is my view that Craig Price suffers from a major mental illness for which treatment is required. While that treatment can now be rendered at your facility, there may come a time when Craig Price will require treatment in a more secure forensic psychiatric setting. You should not, under any circumstance, adopt or accept his view that he is not in need of treatment nor should you take his refusal to be anything other than a manifestation of the pathology underlying the behavior which caused him to be sentenced to your facility. Craig Price, despite his outward appearance and despite his sometimes charming personality, is an individual who is in dire need, in my opinion, of the best and most intensive treatment that can be made available. Even with that, it may very well be that Craig Price will not be in a position where he can be safely placed in the community for a significant period of time into the foreseeable future and beyond. The court continued to order that Price undergo treatment, and he continued to refuse. Over the next few years, during hearings in 1990, 1991, and 1992, he still refused to comply. Finally, in 1993, he was ordered one more time. At that time, he was 20 years old. When he still refused the judge's orders, the state asked that the chief judge hold the defendant in contempt of court. A hearing was scheduled for June 27, 1994, four months before Price's 21st birthday. The judge agreed to hold the hearing for civil, not criminal, contempt of court. After the hearing, the judge found Price to be in civil contempt of court for not cooperating with the evaluation process and sentenced him to an additional year to be served in an adult prison facility. The sentence could be terminated at any time upon his cooperation to undergo a psychological or psychiatric evaluation. On July 4th, Price agreed to comply with the court order. A month later, he met with a court forensic psychiatrist. However, after the evaluation was completed, the doctor reported to the judge that Price had lied regarding the events of the murders. The judge denied the motion to purge the contempt charge because while Price had participated in the evaluation, he had not cooperated with the examiner. Now Price was brought up on criminal contempt charges and a four-day trial was held and heard by a jury. He was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years additional imprisonment, 10 years to be served, with the remaining 15 years suspended and served on probation. Price continued to maintain that his sentence had only been increased due to racism. It seems that while Craig Price was waiting out his five years at the training school, he was able to finish his high school studies and receive a high school equivalency certificate and begin taking college courses. He conducted himself so well that he was awarded special privileges and even counseled other inmates and performed light security duties at the facility. He was even allowed to make a rap video. When the video, which included threatening lyrics, leaked, the public was outraged. They demanded to know why the quadruple murder of women and children was allowed such special treatment. An organization called Citizens Opposed to the Release of Price was formed to increase public awareness about his crimes and lobby for bills to be passed that would prevent his release. Joan Heaton's mother and sister were both active in the organization. Community members even organized a rally when President Bill Clinton made a visit to Rhode Island. Thousands of demonstrators were on hand when the president's plane landed in Providence, all carrying signs opposing Price's release. Clinton agreed with the protesters that laws should be changed to keep juveniles who committed serious crimes incarcerated well beyond the age of 21. He also said that the records of the worst juvenile offenders should not be sealed, but made public. Then in June 1994, Price was indicted on one count of assault and extortion, for threatening to injure a training school employee. In October, the trial was held. The employee told the jury that Price had verbally attacked and threatened him and said that he would snuff him if he ever returned to work. Other witnesses to the incident also testified. Price took the stand and sealed his own fate. He grew irate, blew into a rage, and claimed that there was a conspiracy by the training school employees to keep him locked up. He said everyone had lied and that he was the only honest person to testify at his trial. Price was found guilty on both counts, and sentenced to 15 years, eight suspended, to be served at an adult correctional facility in Cranston. Craig Price's offenses in prison continued, and his sentence continued to be extended. In 1996, he bit a correctional officer's hand during a brawl, and an additional year was added to his sentence. In 1998, Seven more years were added, again for assaulting a correctional officer. In 1999 and 2001, more incidents of violence were recorded, and a total of four more years were tacked on to his sentence. In 2004, Price was taken off of segregated status at Cranston, but it was determined that it would be too dangerous to place him in the general prison population due to the notoriety of his crime. At that time, he was transferred to a Florida prison. In 2009, Price got into a fight with another inmate and a prison guard was stabbed while trying to break it up. Price was charged with the assault and possession of contraband when a shank with a five-inch blade was found on him. He was convicted on four counts and received two and a half years and was also docked 365 days of gain time, or time that had been taken off his sentence for previous good behavior while in prison he was also given 60 days in solitary confinement. Of course, after all this, the people of Warwick, Rhode Island, let out a sigh of relief. For at least the immediate future, they didn't have to worry that the Warwick slasher would return to their neighborhoods. Even up until last year, Craig Price continued to act out violently at the Sewanee Correctional Facility in Florida. In 2017, he attacked another inmate stabbing him five times before guards could intervene. Before that charge, his tentative release date had been December fifteenth, two 2019. His trial has been sentenced for this year more than once, but it has been postponed. It remains to be seen how much time will be added to his sentence or how long he will remain in prison, especially if he continues to be violent while behind bars. As for his victims' families and the citizens of Rhode Island, They are all hoping his stay in prison is permanent. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank Michaela Fortin for suggesting this case to me. As a thank you, I want to also give a shout-out to the Northern Rhode Island Relay for Life, a fundraising chapter for the American Cancer Society that Michaela and her family are very involved in. Our listeners are so awesome. To donate to that most worthy cause you can go to RelayForLife.org slash Northern RI. The link is also included in the show notes. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I'll be back next week with another listener-suggested episode. And until then, be good to one another.